everybody. Welcome to my video channel, Essential Life with Jared. I mean, hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Jared White Show. Wait, what? The reason I'm all confused today is because this is the first time I have ever recorded an episode of my podcast, The Jared White Show, as well as an episode of my video show, Essential Life with Jared, at the same time. And this is in my brand new video studio, which I've set up here in Portland, Oregon. And I'll give you a broader tour of the, the overall surrounds here at some point in the future. But for right now, I have my setup here and I can record a video anytime I want, which is amazing. And so I thought today we'd have a little bit of fun by recording both video and audio for the podcast. So for my podcast listeners, thanks for tuning in to this special edition of The Jared White Show. And for my video audience, this is going to be rather podcasty. So I'll try to breeze through things quickly because I know it's hard to sit through an entire podcast length of video. I might also chop out a few segments and release them as separate videos. So that might be interesting to you as well. For the meta segment of the show, this is something I often do on the podcast where I give a little description or talk about some topic I'm interested in. Uh, this today will be short. I'm in the process of transitioning my video platform that I use for hosting videos away from YouTube and over to Vimeo. I'll be using Vimeo as the system of record for all the videos I post, and those will be embedded on my website at jaredwhite.com and anywhere else I might link to videos. I will still post some video to YouTube. I'll keep the channel there open, uh, but I don't consider that my primary source. It's more of a syndication destination. And this is part of a broader strategy I have where I'm trying to keep control of my content, have it on my own site or on hosting services I pay for and have complete control over, and then syndicate bits of content out to other platforms. But the idea here is to always own your own platform. I actually have a link for the show to an article. The topic is essentially always own your own platform. I thought it was a nice little concise description of why that's important. Uh, so check that out. But basically the idea here is whether you're working with photos or video or blog content or even maybe short snippets of content uh, that you'd normally just only post on Facebook or Twitter. The idea here is to always post it first on a platform you have complete control over, ideally at your own domain name. So for me, I have a domain name, jaredwhite.com, and that's where I'm principally focusing everything that I create on. And then you syndicate that out to other platforms as necessary. And there's other strategies to this as well. Like if you want to have some exclusive content just for members, maybe use a third-party platform like Patreon. There's also systems where you can have the membership set up right from your own website. I feel like Patreon is fairly neutral in the sense that even though, yes, it is a completely uh, commercial third-party platform, I feel like you know their whole reason for existence is to help creators monetize and promote their own content. So the incentive there for them as a business is different than something like YouTube, where their primary customer is actually an advertiser, <laughs> uh, or certainly Facebook and Twitter. One last note before the end of the segment. I predicted on February 21st, 2019, that at some point this year, there would be a rival video streaming service created by creators who are sick of YouTube and want to create a platform that they had more direct control over and had policies that were completely friendly towards creators and help creators monetize their content. 
I did say I thought Casey Neistat would be behind this. Uh, that is not the case so far. So I did not get that part of the prediction right. Uh, but I did get the prediction right because there is now a new video service called Nebula, which has been uh, created by the folks at Standard TV. Standard is sort of a conglomerate of a bunch of different YouTube creators, some of whom I'm aware of, such as Renee Ritchie of Vector and CGB Cray. And so a whole bunch of creators have pooled their resources and launched this rival service called Nebula. I've signed up for the free trial. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, I miss some of the community interaction features you expect to see on a platform like YouTube. You know, there's no comments. Uh, but on the plus side, you know you're supporting creators, and there are no ads, and everything's a really nice, clean experience. So I'm pretty excited about Nebula. I'm curious what you all think about it. And now on to the link segment. First article is by Kevin McArdle, all about remote work and why remote work is not really the future of work. Everyone keeps saying remote is the future of work, and he's saying, no, it's the current thing that everyone can do who has a type of job that can be done remotely. So why aren't more companies doing it? If remote work is totally possible and many companies who have the kind of jobs that are, you know, work in the remote context, you know, work that you can do over the internet with your computers and so forth, uh, if there are all kinds of jobs like that out there and it can totally be done, it's not the future anymore, uh, why aren't more companies actually doing that? Uh, what are the hurdles? Uh, what are the, the mindset shifts that need to happen for more corporations to realize that a remote workforce is ultimately a better workforce, both for the people that are doing the work and the company itself? Uh, I thought this article was a great rundown. If you have any interest in remote work topics, please let me know, because this is what I do for a living. I am a remote worker. I have my own freelance business. So I'd love to talk more about this with you. Uh, let me know if you have any questions on that topic. This next article is about something that I've really been curious about for much of my life. Uh, it's about how some people, when they hear certain pieces of music, they get goosebumps. You know, you might hear somebody say like, oh, that song gave me the chills or, or that symphony, that, that moment when it's the crescendo, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. You hear comments like that. Uh, but it doesn't happen for everyone. And different people have different experiences with different types of music. Uh, there might be somebody out there who has a bone-chilling moment listening to a country-western song. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Sorry if there's any fans of country-western out there. Uh, yeah, but everyone's experience is different, and some people have this phenomenon quite frequently. Others don't feel it at all. Uh, so this article is kind of an interesting look at you know the scientific explanations and research into this phenomenon. Um, and something, as, as a little aside here, something that's perplexed me at different times, and I've actually done some research on this, is uh, often hear a piece of music, and it, for whatever reason, it moves me, and I start to tear up, you know, I, I get very emotional about it, and, you know, I think that's kind of accepted in society, um, but I've had that same experience with, like, still art at a museum. Uh, I was at one museum, uh, I believe it was in San Francisco, and I was looking at some kind of, oh, I forget, it was like an old, basically a piece of furniture, several hundred years old with this incredible carving, very intricate, very beautiful, you know, this impeccable craftsmanship. And I was looking at this piece of furniture and I started to cry right there in the museum. <laughs> I was really embarrassed about it. Uh, and it was so weird. I, I actually decided to look it up and do an internet search like, 
do people cry in museums? Is this a thing or am I just a total weirdo? And it turns out that's actually a thing. There's actually historical literature of art aficionados and creative people who go to museums or go to different uh, you know, experiences, you know, hun- going back hundreds of years and being moved to tears by some work of art. Um, so this is a thing. I Yes, okay, I am a weirdo, but not because of that. <laughs> And last link of the day in the link segment is something that's pretty geeky, but I love it. It's a web page where the guy did all these weird little things in the CSS and, and got the markup just so in order to have a web page where you actually see all the markup of the web page on the web page, but if you go to view source, it's just the markup. So, for example, you know, a paragraph tag. You have the, the brackets and the P, and, you know, you have that anchoring each side of the paragraph. And if you view the source of the page, yeah, there's a paragraph tag there. But when you're actually looking at the page in your browser, you see those paragraph tags when you're reading a paragraph. It's like, how is this possible? How did you do that? Uh, and he uses this article to describe how he did that. It's sheer genius. So I highly recommend you check out that link. I, I just, it, it, I had a blast with it. And on to our image segment. This is quite literally about images. Uh, a group of researchers have found a way to use AI deepfake type technology to create a deepfake of the Mona Lisa talking or, you know, well, you know, they didn't use the, the voice sound or anything like that, but you see like video clips of the Mona Lisa moving her head and talking and you know looking like an actual human being and they did that solely using the image they just took the image of the famous painting and brought it to life and it is wild <laughs> i mean the, the the rate at which this kind of technology is progressing is just startling and it's really becoming a problem in the you know, sphere of politics and historical records and so forth, because we're at the point now where you can essentially, you know, take a photo of any historical figure and make them seemingly say or do whatever you want. Uh, you know, maybe it's not so bad if it's like Abraham Lincoln or somebody, you know, if it's somebody who's current, you know, if somebody has uh, President Trump, you know, say some crazy thing that he didn't say, which would be very unusual. <laughs> If they had him say something, you know, that he didn't say and then everyone gets upset about it and it's not real, you know, that's a problem. Uh, and, you know, any other sort of uh, major celebrity or, or political figure. Um, but all that aside, <laughs> that's a larger topic for another day. Uh, but for right now, uh, using this kind of technology to bring uh, paintings to life, such as the Mona Lisa, is really, really cool. Uh, so, uh, I'm, I'm, I almost wonder if there's going to be like a blog or a website somewhere where all they do is post links to this kind of stuff. Cause I would eat it up. I think it's really, really cool. <laughs> so that's it for my notes for today. Uh, I'll do a little ending segment here, kind of off the cuff, just some further thoughts about the Apple WWDC week and keynote and all the stuff that happened last week. Uh, I did record a previous episode of the Jared White Show where I talked about uh, some of the things I'd hoped to see before WWDC and which things turned out to come to pass, which, uh, interestingly enough, almost everything happened that I was hoping for, which is really cool. I've heard those comments from a lot of people, a lot of bloggers, a lot of podcasters, a lot of programmers who are saying, uh, you know, 
wow, like Apple got it right this time. They, they really were listening and listening to all the feedback from the past year about, you know, deficiencies in the iPad operating system, uh, problems with the future of the Mac platform, like where it's headed and, you know, bringing apps to the Mac and, uh, you know, making sure it's a robust platform on both hardware and software side and just all kinds of different things that have sort of been various points of grumbling. You know, certainly the Mac Pro situation, which has been ridiculous for years. Uh, everyone's hoping to see, you know, what is this new Mac Pro that Apple's cooking up. So between the Mac Pro announcement and all the great work that Apple's done with Project Catalyst and Swift UI to bring all kinds of new developer tooling to all their platforms, uh, the, the future of the iPad as a serious work tool, um, the, the Mac being able to scale all the way from enthusiast hardware all the way to giant, huge Hollywood studio level setups, you know, where they have massive budgets to spend on all this incredible new hardware. Uh, I think Apple's really shown that the trajectory of their platforms is really sound. There's, there's no one else in the industry who has the portfolio that Apple has from, you know, little wristwatch computers all the way up to huge, massive pro workstations and all the different device categories in between. Uh, I still think there's a little bit of a problem with the laptop story, uh, you know, those keyboards. <sighs> but that aside, I think Apple has its strongest product lineup it's ever had, and this WWDC shows that Apple does listen to its customers. They really do. They, they've heard the complaints. They're, they're doing something about the things that Apple enthusiasts tend to grumble about. They're doing something about it all, and the next several years of Apple tech is just looking amazing. So those are my sort of post-post-WWDC thoughts. That's it for today's show. Thanks so much for tuning in, whether in podcast form or on the video side of things. Uh, thank you for checking out this joint venture. I won't be doing video and audio show at the same time all that often. All, you know, the videos will kind of be their own world and the podcast will be its own thing. But today I thought it'd be pretty fun to give that a go. So thank you again for listening or watching and I'll see you next time. Bye. Jared White Show.